Smart, simple, seamless. Philips' new Intrasite Interventional Applications platform delivers best-in-class imaging and physiology solutions with both co- and tri-registration tools on a new application-based platform. Ask your local Philips representative to demo Intrasite today. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, Heart Sounds listeners. I'm Shelley Wood, the managing editor at TCTMD, and this is Heart Sounds, the podcast where I recap some of the top stories we covered on TCTMD.com this month and play you some of the audio clips I and my team recorded when we were putting together those stories. Several folks on Twitter lately have listed Heart Sounds among their top cardiology podcasts, and that was pretty darn awesome, especially because many of the others are hosted by physicians. If you're a first-time listener to Heart Sounds, get one thing straight. I myself am not a doctor, I'm not a cardiologist, I'm a journalist, a print journalist no less. For all I know, I'm pronouncing medical terminology incorrectly, even though I probably know how to spell it. I sure as heck am not going to be dispensing medical advice on this podcast, but hopefully providing something of an outsider's view on hot cardiology topics offers a slightly different voice in the echo chamber. Let's get started. Last month, when I was pulling together the January edition of Heart Sounds, I told you that TCTMD's Yael Maxwell was still at the STS meeting trying to do justice to a story about a controversial session from the opening day of this annual Thoracic Surgery Society meeting. Her story was ultimately published after Heart Sounds had already headed to production. Part of the reason this story took a little more time than usual relates to a phenomenon I hinted at last month, namely that being outspoken on social media or at conference podiums doesn't always translate into eagerly answering questions from journalists. Keep in mind this spicy STS session comes on the heels of another very high-profile session at the EACTS meeting last fall, which escalated tensions between surgeons and interventionalists when accusations were raised about the EXCEL trial of PCI versus surgery in left main disease. Yael was dogged in her pursuit of this story. She ultimately delivered a 3,000-word feature covering several talks from this STS session, raising concerns about data that had been part of TAVR's approval way back when. In the most controversial of these STS presentations, surgeon Anthony Fernery of Providence Health System in Portland, Oregon, presented data he alleged were quote-unquote withheld from the Partner 1A trial when it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011. Fernery had used data from the 2012 FDA analysis performed for the advisory committee that reviewed TAVR's approval as an alternative to surgery in high-risk patients. That full analysis is available online, but at least some of the numbers that Fernery reported are nowhere in the analysis. I myself went looking for them. Because he had done his own reanalyses of numbers reported for several subgroup analyses. At the heart of Fernery's concerns was his belief that the trial sponsors or investigators had suppressed important subgroup data showing surgery to be superior to TAVR. That was something that trial investigators themselves vociferously rejected. Seek out Yael's feature on TCTMD to get the 360-degree view. It's called TAVR Tussle at U.S. Surgery Meeting Threatens to Widen Surgeon-Cardiologist Wedge. 
Yale got reactions to Fernery's presentation from surgeons on the panel that day, as well as from Craig Smith, co-PI of Partner 1A, who charged Fernery with making, quote, reckless accusations based on disassembling a randomized trial to perform underpowered analyses and, quote, cohort debridements. She also spoke with SDS program planner Edward Chen, as well as Toby Rogers of MedStar Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C., who was the lone interventionalist on the stage when Fernery presented the data, something Rogers said he was made well aware of that day. I had a bounty of great audio clips to choose from for this podcast today, but ultimately I think I'll give the floor to Yael, who asked Fernery about the growing divide, arguably enhanced by sessions like this one, between surgeons and interventionalists. Do you think an issue like this or something like what's going on with the Excel controversy, do you think that's kind of driving an insurmountable wedge between cardiologists and surgeons? I certainly hope not. I mean, I think we need to work together to do what's right for the patient. And uh, when trials are designed to be successful rather than to ferret out the actual truth, then we start to put then people stand up and speak for what's right Mm -hmm. for the patient. And I think we all need to stand up and speak for what's right to the patient, whether it's a cardiologist or it's a surgeon or it's a primary care physician. Mm -hmm. But we need to to have in our armamentarium the data that allows us to determine what's right for the patient. And that data can't be colored by either a surgical bias, a cardiology bias, an administrative bias. It has to be right for the patient. So I hope it doesn't drive a wedge. We're just trying to find out what the truth is. Also missing the cutoff for the January Heart Sounds was the LINK meeting in Leipzig, Germany. This was our first year at LINK, covered adroitly by our endovascular expert, Laura McEwen. Find all of our LINK news under the conference tab on TCTMD. Back in the office, Laura covered a new analysis out of the Euclid trial. Euclid, you may recall, was the large international randomized trial published in 2016, showing no benefit of ticagrelor over clopidogrel in preventing cardiovascular events in patients with peripheral artery disease. This new analysis from Euclid, published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, compared cardiovascular disease events and limb events, such as amputation, between men and women in this trial over 30 months of follow-up. The authors, led by Axel Hain of the University of Bern, Switzerland, found that women were actually less likely than men to have a major adverse cardiac event, 9.5% versus 11.2%. They were also less likely to die from any cause, from cardiac causes, or have an MI, although the risk of stroke was similar. Importantly, however, women had major adverse limb events, or needed hospitalization for limb ischemia, at roughly the same rates as men. Laura spoke with the senior author on the study, William Hyatt, of the University of Colorado School of Medicine in Aurora, who highlighted the historical underrepresentation of women in PAD trials. That's made it very difficult, he said, to understand whether the risks and benefits in men would also hold true for women. Here's part of what Hyatt had to say to Laura. I think the vascular beds are probably equalized in risk uh, in men and women. And uh, you could sort of say, well, that, that means that there's no reason why women wouldn't benefit as much as men. Certainly, that you could, you could say that. Um, I think that any time we go into the leg with a catheter or a bypass, we should be cognizant of the fact that that does raise the risk of subsequent leg events. Um, so it's not just a completely benign procedure, and that would be true for both men and women. 
Laura, along with TCTMD's Michael O'Reardon, spent the last weekend of February at the CRT meeting in National Harbor, Maryland. As you might expect, that program had plenty to offer on a range of topics that have been big newsmakers in recent months, as well as new coronary stent, TAVR, and DCB data. Mike also spent part of the month working on a feature story that we've nicknamed Trial by Twitter. Look out for that one on TCTMD in the next few days. In his run-of-the-mill reporting, Mike covered a paper, also published in Jack, looking at ischemic events following coronary stenting beyond the first year, regardless of stent type. Led by Mahesh Madhavan of New York Presbyterian Hospital and Columbia University Medical Center in New York, the study showed that even with contemporary drug-eluting stents, very late stent-related events, including ischemia-driven TLR and stent thrombosis, occur at a rate of roughly 2% per year. The study included 19 clinical trials of the first, second, and latest generation drug-eluting stents. And it's well established that the newer stents are very safe and effective, but most studies, as the authors point out, haven't followed patients long-term. It might be that if physicians could identify predictors of late events, more could be done to mitigate those. Events in this study were only captured out to five years. Here's part of Mike's conversation with Madhavan. You talked about the clinical question, too, and your paper touches on it, that these patients, they have a lot of years left in front of them. You know, a stable patient that gets a stent, you know, you're looking at, at 20 years of life uh, for a lot of them, exactly. and possibly longer. So it's very relevant, I guess, you know, what happens to them in that time span. Absolutely. While we can't specifically extrapolate, you know, our five-year results to 20 years, one would think that, these risks persist beyond, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years for these patients, uh, many of whom are being revascularized in their 50s and 60s. So mm -hmm. for that individual patient, um, these risks are certainly real, and finding uh, strategies that potentially mitigate this risk over time is going to be crucially important. You know, some combination of strategies might ultimately contribute to, to better outcomes in these sure. patients. One of the things we've written a lot about over the last few years is the link between procedural volumes and outcomes, as well as volume requirements for TAVR and other evolving transcatheter valve interventions. These have typically been recommended by guideline groups, but are even more rigid for centers hoping for patient procedures to have reimbursement by the CMS. One of the requirements set by CMS is that centers wanting to offer transcatheter valve interventions is that they meet a minimum number of PCI procedures for coronary disease. TCTMD's Todd Neal dug into a new study this month, published online ahead of print in JAMA Cardiology, with lead author Neil Butala of the Massachusetts General Hospital. Butala and colleagues drew on numbers from the nationwide readmissions database in 2016, looking at the 283 hospitals that performed at least five TAVR procedures and 125 that performed at least five TMVR procedures between January and November 2016. The mean inpatient PCI volumes for the two groups were 386 and 451, respectively. What they showed is that there was absolutely no link between PCI volume and the outcomes of those transcatheter valve procedures, calling into question the minimum PCI volume thresholds set by the CMS in its national coverage determinations for the two procedures. 
Todd spoke with the senior author on the study, Sammy Elmeraya, also of Mass General, asking him if any of the findings were unexpected. Have a listen. We were surprised that, again, there is absolutely no relationship for either TAVR or transcatheter mitral valve repair. We're even perhaps a little bit more surprised in the TAVR realm because, you know, that some of the complications associated with TAVR do, of course, mandate um, high proficiency with complex coronary intervention. So, for example, if you were to occlude a coronary, uh, being able to treat that patient appropriately uh, and get them out of that potentially devastating complication does require proficiency in, with coronary intervention. Here, it didn't matter if it was TAVR or TMBR, there's really no relationship whatsoever. I myself got to take a bit of vacation time in February, which was a welcome escape from the snow and ice in my neck of the woods. Now it's Caitlin Cox who's getting a bit of time offline, which is why you're not hearing from her or one of her interviews this month. She managed to wrap up her coverage of the ICET meeting in the first week of February, and I hope you check that out. In particular, Caitlin has continued to cover the prizes and pitfalls of endovascular and coronary procedures moving out of hospitals and into standalone, often privately owned, ambulatory and office-based labs. I don't know any other news outlets that's covering this fast transition as closely and thoughtfully as Caitlin on TCTMD. You can find her work by searching OBLs on TCTMD. Please check out her latest, which grew out of an ICET session, entitled Values-Based Outpatient Care. Put patients first, even when no one's watching. I myself got little in the way of writing done this month, but I did manage to cover a set of five articles appearing together in Circulation, Cardiovascular, Quality, and Outcomes mid-month. All of these in different ways centered around the reaction to the ischemia trial and included a new meta-analysis of PCI in stable CAD, as well as unstable CAD, and its impact on mortality, or lack thereof. There was also a patient perspective by journalist Bob Dreyfus. He wrote a first-person account of how his own, mostly asymptomatic, stable coronary disease diagnosis went from hardly worth mentioning to an urgent cabbage. The entire series of papers is food for thought, and I hope my story is a good jumping-off point for that. I spoke with journal editor Brahmaji Nalamathu, who wrote one of the three physician commentaries accompanying the other two papers. I asked him what lessons he hoped people would take from reading all five pieces together. His response, I might add, is a great segue into that trial-by-Twitter feature of Mike's that I mentioned earlier. Maybe we'll delve into that one next month. For now, here's Nalamathu with his two take-home lessons. One lesson is that we need to uh, change kind of the conversation around stable coronary artery disease. We need to make it less about a sense of urgency but decision-making, because otherwise all our attempts at trying to involve patients in, in these really complex choices will consistently fail. So we need to, to really understand that there's a difference between stable coronary artery disease and unstable coronary artery disease, and we need to have those conversations more broadly uh, as a society, really, just even beyond the providers. And I'll say the second thing that's a really important point is that these discussions can be very tough to have, that I think there's a role for like social 
That's it for the February 2020 edition of Heart Sounds. February is Heart Month, and you listeners are the vast minority who know I'm not talking about flowers and chocolate. It's also the month that Circulation puts out its Go Red for Women issue, and we did our best this month to highlight some of that research. I hope you'll check out those stories, our meeting coverage, and more. Props to all of you who continue to reach out with story ideas, story tips, and then make yourselves available for interviews. We couldn't write interesting stories about heart disease if people didn't tell us interesting things. Reach me via my email, which is in my bio on TCTMD, or find me on Twitter as ShellyWood2. Thanks for listening to Heart Sounds. Love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original series from TCTMD featuring Rock's Heart Radio with Dr. Roxanna Moran and Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson. These episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.